Hey, Parker. Hi, Carrie. How are you? I'm really doing well. And today we're going to be exploring the growing edge and conflict. Mm-hmm. I think there are only maybe three Quaker jokes, and one of them is about conflict. Do you know that one? I actually do. The, the, the story goes that the Quaker farmer had purchased a mule who had refused to work for him for about 10 years. And finally, the, the farmer got fed up and he went out to the barn and lifted up the mule's ear and said very quietly, friend mule, thee knows that I am a Quaker. Thee knows that I am a nonviolent man. Thee knows that I will not yell at thee, he knows I will not curse thee, he knows I will not kick thee or hit thee or poke thee with a sharp stick. But what thee does not know is that I might sell thee to a Baptist farmer down the road who will beat the living daylights out of thee. (laughs) (laughs) And the moral of this story, my apologies to Baptists everywhere, I, I know you're not like that. And mules. And mules too, yes, absolutely, thank you. The moral of that story is there's more than one way to get a job done, and we're, we're going to try to explore some of those ways today, <laughs> short of selling anyone to a Baptist farmer. <laughs> <laughs> to the words and how they between us, and to us and how we live. Welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Carrie Newcomer. And I'm Parker Palmer. So Parker, today we're talking about conflict, which uh, I think is a growing edge conversation for a lot of us right now. I think so too. And I I think back to a year and a half ago, I guess it was, when we put up our website and we said right up top that We wanted to devote this site, this project, to exploring the growing edge of our personal, vocational, and political lives. And I think what we'd like to do today is to explore navigating conflict in in each of those areas. Um, We obviously can't do a lot because we have about 15 minutes per area, but I think just to touch in with each of them is a way of reaching out to a lot of people who in one, two, or three of those areas are really trying to figure out how to handle these conflictual times in a life-giving way uh, that attempts to maintain relationships rather than blow things up. And so we have a question attached to that focus, and maybe you could read it for us, Carrie. Yes, so our um, September question of the month will be, we are living in divisive times culturally and politically. For many of us, navigating conflicted or complex situations with colleagues, family, or friends has become a true growing edge. When navigating a conflicted relationship or situation, what has helped you stay true to your authentic self? What are the practices and touchstones that have helped guide you to assess when to hold them and when to fold them? I like that question a lot. Um, I've thought a lot about it over the last week or two since we landed on this topic. And let's start with the personal, since uh, that's where most of us live our our daily lives. And and I, I'll start by saying that 
I can remember in years past uh, when there was a conflict in in my family, um, and it looked like all the other families around me were getting along just fine. Uh, but at age 80, one thing you learn is that all families have their problems, and um, conflict is is not unique to me and mine. And and so here here's a topic that's just part of the human condition, and I think part of intimate relationships, part of just living close to each other day by day by day, and experiencing the friction that sometimes comes with that with that close living. Um, in, in, the, in the grand perspective of things, what goes on across the dinner table may, may be small, but to those of us who are sitting at that table, it can get quite big and a little out of focus sometimes. So let's, let's explore some of the things we know about, about situations of that sort, conflict in the family and in intimate relationships. Well, you know, I'm just going to be upfront here, you know, that I am a person who is not comfortable with conflict. You know, it's one of those, it, conflict feels bad. Um, you know, I worry about conflict. W- when you're a person that's not comfortable with conflict, there's a tendency to fall into false harmony, mm-hmm. to to not show up as your authentic self, to to kind of disappear a little bit psychologically because you're trying to keep the peace because you're uncomfortable, you know, with conflict. So I think there's sometimes there's some gender differences in terms of Mm -hmm. conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, Not always, but there, you know, I I think I know more, I've met more women who who just say, I am so not comfortable with conflict Mm -hmm. or I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do conflict well. Right, right. No, I I can identify with big parts of that myself. And and I think it's a general problem in, in white middle-class America, the part of America that we grew up in, maybe in the Midwest more than on the East Coast, I'm not sure. Um, it's easy to get stereotypes about those things that aren't aren't accurate. I think mostly I feel like this is, again, part of the human condition. Um, I think what, what you described, this disappearing uh, psychologically, even if you don't leave the room, um, something goes on inside of you where you say, I'm just, I'm just not going to throw fuel on this fire by saying what I really think or what I really feel or how this is affecting me. I think it's really important to realize that when you do that, you're really not making peace. You're just shoving the conflict underground. And conflict that is suppressed and shoved underground is going to come back somehow, sometime. And it's either going to come back between us in in an intimate relationship so that something happens that triggers what seems like an irrational explosion Mm -hmm. because whatever happened in the moment isn't that big a deal. But what's really been triggered is is that conflict that you shoved underground. It's either going to come back in the relationship or, in my personal experience, it's going to come back in depression. Um, I think it's pretty widely agreed uh, among psychologists that depression, which I personally have experienced on several occasions, often, not always, but often has to do with suppressed anger that then gets aimed at oneself and tends to shut you down emotionally and psychologically. 
So, of course, that's going to happen when you deal with a conflict by trading in part of your integrity. Yeah. Uh, if, if the thing you're sitting on, the thing you're suppressing is something that's really, really important to you, it really doesn't maintain a relationship to suppress it or to hide it out. I think it actually destroys a relationship. And one little formula I have, and I'd love to know how you experience this, Carrie, is that we have to understand whether we're talking about a two-person relationship or a larger communal relationship, that conflict is not the end of the road. Conflict mm, is the potential yeah. doorway into something deeper, a deeper relationship. If we can navigate that conflict creatively, we're going to love each other more. We're going to get along better. We're going to trust each other and, and become a stronger net in which to hold all kinds of challenging things. I mean, does that make sense? It makes total sense to me. You know, that that tendency or that pull to create a false harmony, you know, that feeling that that'll keep the relationship stable, but it also keeps the relationship at a particular surface level, you know. Mm-hmm. There's also this idea of, of, of working with conflict, also being authentic, being true to yourself, but also to do it with love. You know, there's you know, you can th- you can throw pipe bombs into the the conversation, um, or you can speak your truth um, from your heart, from love, um, listening to the other person. It doesn't have to mean that it's the end of the road for the relationship. It doesn't have to be that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's easy it's easy to feel that way. And like I said, you know, I'm just being super honest. You know, I'm just one of those people. It's like, and so of course I become a folk singer that works for social justice because you know there'll be no conflict there. <laughs> oh no, none at all. No, nothing. Not nothing, at all. You, nothing you believe or speak mm, about will create any no. waves whatsoever in a public context. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really important for us to get a get a grip on that basic reality that conflict can and should be the doorway opening into something deeper. And and if it doesn't, if it can't be that way, then it's not a real relationship. You know, that sometimes is sadly the case. Friendships can be premised on falsehoods. Partnerships, marriages can be premised on falsehoods. Not that we're lying to one another, but that we're withholding the whole of our truth. And an intimate relationship can't be involved in withholding. I'll tell you a quick story. So years ago, I started my work in, in, in around issues of this sort um, in in churches, in Christian churches, the kind in which I was raised, sort of mainline Protestant churches. I was trained as a sociologist, and so back in the '60s and the '70s, I would get calls from the ministers of white congregations who would say, would you please come to this congregation and help us learn how to become more diverse? And my answer was always, no, I won't do that. You called yourself a homogeneous white congregation. Well, the minister would say, what's wrong with that? I would say, there's no such thing as a homogeneous white congregation. There's only a bunch of white people 
pretending that they don't have any differences among each other um, for fear that exposing their differences would make everything blow up. So tell me this, as long as you're afraid of your invisible difference, why in heaven's name would someone with a visible difference want to join your community? It's an unsafe place for, for the people who are already there as well as for people with visible differences. So I'd say if you want me to come and help you surface your own differences in a way that moves you beyond fear, I'll try to do that if, if you're willing to, to get with the program and to That's cooperate with it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if you want to maintain the myth of a homogeneous group of white people, it just doesn't exist. We have a lot of studies that show that Congregations, especially, are places are, are some of the last places in the world where people will take what's really going on in their lives. You know, I have a son or daughter who's in the process of gender transition or of discovering that he or she is somewhere in the LGBTQ community. Or my wife and I are really struggling with our marriage, and you know, the word divorce gets mentioned every now and then. Or I'm in the midst of a vocational crisis. Those are too dangerous often to take to the religious community that that people hoped would be able to hold those things. And so this is one we really need to work on in our in our intimate relationships because a lot of life gets shut down when when we don't, we don't know how to, how to do that. Yeah, and I keep coming back to this idea of risking being authentic, risking, you know, what's really happening, who you really are. And, um, you know, there is a tendency sometimes in spiritual community that you're always supposed to be joyful. You know, if you're, if you're not joyful, then, you know, you're, you're doing something wrong. That having conflict, that having uh, any kind of struggle or even suffering, you, you're doing something wrong. And um, when it's just part of the human condition, you know, we mm-hmm. will have things that we suffer and endure. There will be things that we have, uh, we, we get into complex and conflicted um, situations. You know, this, this, it's the human condition. It's right. all of the above. And, you know, limiting our, you know, what what we can be and what we can show to now we're joyful, you know, is, is, again, we're keeping at a certain surface level uh, of, of personal relationship. Um, yeah, exactly. So, and that actually applies when we're moving out from personal relationship into the kinds of relationships we have at work or mm-hmm. vocationally as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's a different, it's a different, a, a bit different navigation, but it's still being able to show up as your authentic self and um, speak your truth and be who you are. Right, right. And as we make that movement from the personal realm, the family intimate relationship realm, into the vocational realm, what it's like for us in our work situation, I just want to name one principle that to me applies in both areas, but people hear this as kind of radical in terms of the family, but it's very important to me and it comes from experience. The principle is that I will not accept 
treatment or behavior, words or actions from family members or people close to me in any way that I would not accept from a stranger on the street. Um, if, if, it's, if the words or actions are so abusive that I would walk around the block to avoid the stranger on the street, it is not acceptable simply because this person is a member of my family or a close colleague. It just isn't. And, the, you know, if you live by that principle, there are risks in both family and work settings because you have to say to people, that's not acceptable to me. You can't speak to me that way. You, you can't behave in my presence in that way. And, and the risks are high, but, you know, at, at age 80, one of the things that's very clear to me is that the biggest risk of all is failing to live one's life standing on and within one's own integrity, as you were saying a moment ago. Getting along or getting by just doesn't pass the test for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, when I check off this mortal coil, check out from this mortal coil, um, I'm not going to be asking, did I get by okay? Did I get mm -hmm. along with everyone? Yeah. I'm going to be asking, did I live out my integrity as best I knew how uh, yeah. in service of the world and in service of my own well-being? And I think if I can say yes to that question, I'll probably be in pretty good shape. But yeah, there are, there are work-related situations where this becomes quite urgent. And and I, I should say, too, that is a real growing edge kind of navigation. You know, when do you hang in there and do the hard work of staying in relationship? There are moments when it's better to be in right relationship than to be right you know, and there are times when, you know, you you step into that uncomfortable situation um, and do the hard work. Mm -hmm. um, and and sometimes, like I said, it is uncomfortable and you 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 choose to do that. And when when is it time to say this conversation um, has become diminishing? or abusive, or there's something about that interaction that um, it's it's time to step away. Um, that if I don't step away, um, I'm not I'm not being true to that integrity that you're talking about. Uh, and it's it's a hard line, you know. I think for a lot of us, we're navigating when when is it time to say, you know, I I am all about building bridges, but you just like set a bonfire, threw gas on it, and a match. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, so um, I think it, you know, there are those moments when you have to like sh shake the dust off your shoes and say, okay, this is, yeah. this is where I take a, at least take a break from it. And, yeah, and there, you know, sometimes it, uh, you check in back later and say, okay, where are we at now? You know, but, but it's a, it's, it's a tough navigation. You know, like I'm doing all this like, like, truth telling here uh, about conflict being hard for me you know and i think there's also like these personal defaults that we head into my friend uh faith she, we were talking about personal defaults that you know when something happens 
she says she goes into the 66 ways it, it could all go terribly wrong. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. That's her default. And then try to guard for that. And I think, you know, when something is heading into conflict, my default is the going through the 66 ways, it's probably my fault. Was I sensitive enough? Did I say the wrong thing? You know, I, I'll go through that whole gyration of the 66 ways. Um, and to get to the point where, well, no, I, I think I, I think we're working with, you know, a difference of opinion here. I think we're working with this, you know, but sometimes you have to kind of be aware of your own personal, you know, emotional or, or relational defaults and, and say, oh, I'm doing that thing, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. Or and it could I, be blame I, or it could be, you know, there's a lot of things that we default to when we get into conflicted situations. Tricks we, we play in our, on ourselves in our own minds uh, to kind of try to wiggle out of something that we really should be facing into. I think, you know, you make a very strong point for me, Carrie. I always learn from you. And you're reminding me that there are times when it's very important to stay at the table um, you have a great song, There's Room at the Table for Everyone, and that, and I absolutely believe that. And when everyone is there, things can get challenging. And, um, and thinking about staying at the table and working through those challenges is very important. To, to be as precise as I know how, I just want to say that staying at the table simply because this person is a family member or a colleague is not enough for me. If I, if I wouldn't accept that behavior from a stranger on the street, the fact that this person is a family member or a colleague means nothing to me. Mm -hmm. And so I have a very simple litmus test. Would I accept that behavior from a stranger on the street? And if the answer is no, and I still am feeling, but I need to stay at this table, I need to find a way to put all of those pieces together and come out with my integrity intact, or come out with some sort of inner transformation where I've learned that I read the situation wrong, or I was doing something to trigger the behavior that uh, that I didn't appreciate. You know, I had a I had a recent experience with an org. Or I belong to several organizations where I'm pretty intimately involved, and I had an experience over the last few years with one of those organizations where a series of things got done that I found quite offensive. And so I distanced myself from that organization. I left the table mm -hmm. um, and walked away and took up new activities, got involved with other organizations that were doing good work. And finally, um, members of this organization that I distanced myself from, the, uh, the board of that organization, said to me, we've noticed that you've distanced yourself, that you're not as involved as you used to be. And we think we know some of the reasons why, but we'd like to sit down with you for as long as it takes to hear your story and to, for us to have a chance to respond. Well, that was a generous offer on their part. And yes. it, it showed an awareness, which I appreciated. Mm -hmm. And I responded in kind. I, I said, if we can rebuild this bridge, I'd be glad to, but I, but I need to tell you that I need to be radically honest about what happened that caused me to walk away, to leave the table. Mm 
And they said, they said, that's a deal. We, we will do it. So we gathered and I said, I'm not looking for an apology. I'm not looking for an explanation. I think I understand what happened. I'm just looking to be heard. I, I want mm -hmm. to be deeply heard. And I proceeded for an hour, hour and a quarter, to do a very difficult thing, which was to tell the radical truth. I told this group of people with whom I don't have close relationships the same things I told my wife and my closest friends over the last couple of years about the depth of this, of this injury in a relationship. Well, it turned out that a lot of these people didn't know a lot of this information. They, they had never had the whole picture put together for them. They were appalled and aghast when they heard the whole story. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't, and I'm very grateful for this, they didn't simply say, we're so sorry. They owned their own piece of, of that fact that they didn't have the whole picture. They owned the fact that they hadn't asked the right questions of the right people, that they hadn't paid attention to things that were happening that they should have paid attention to. And, and therefore, I felt heard. And, yes. and we then went into a third phase of the conversation where we all were saying, now, what can we learn from this experience so we mm. don't make these same mistakes again? And we all we all laughed and said, "We'll you know we'll make new mistakes. Let's give each other permission to yeah. do that. Yes. But we shouldn't make the old mistakes now that we've heard what they were." So, my relationship with that particular organization that I had been involved with has been significantly healed. I carry less of a burden, and they carry less of a burden. By the end of that evening, they were saying. We've heard some really hard and heavy things tonight, but somehow we feel lighter, um, yes. which is such an interesting paradox. You know, there's an old saying in, in uh, the religious tradition in which you and I were raised, you, you, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I felt that on that evening, I experienced that old saying coming alive. I, I deeply believe that to be true. And I think in our workplaces, if more of that could happen, and employers could do a lot to establish contexts in which that could happen. You know, in some hospitals these days, some healthcare organizations, there are safe spaces for healthcare professionals to speak with each other honestly about medical errors they've made, which is mm -hmm. a very touchy subject. Yes, um, and 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 to, and and when they do, they're not penalized. They're actually affirmed for uh, revealing data. And I, we're not talking here about the drunken surgeon or the the mm -hmm. negligent uh, individual. We're talking about honest mistakes that happen because we're human. They're affirmed because they have now provided the organization information that will help them make systemic changes to reduce that the frequency of that particular mistake. And, yes. and that in turn will mean that hospitalization becomes less likely to be the fifth or sixth leading cause of death in this country. 
So in the workplace, as in a lot of other places, truth-telling is um, an undervalued art. We spend way too much time blowing smoke, pretending it's not happening, looking away, and imagining that somehow that's going to allow things to go well. Uh, and we really have to call that out for the nonsense that it is. Well, and going back to that concept of false harmony, you know, and there was there were several things in that story that really struck me. One was receptivity, that that the, in this conversation you were talking about, there was a receptivity um, to hearing the story, to responding, um, responding in 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 ways that uh, were thoughtful and 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 really heard what you were you were trying to express. Also, kind of knowing you and and knowing the preparation for this meeting, I know that you did a lot of work before the work that there was a lot of journaling, there was a lot of writing, conversations with trusted friends uh, and family. And, you know, before you ever went into that, knowing you were going into a situation where there was possible conflict and truth-telling needed to happen for you and hopefully for the organization, you'd done the work before the work. Um, I I think that's a really important thing, too, you know, to... Um, to 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 know to know, you know, what it is that you're working with uh, personally, sometimes emotionally, um, and and have a sense of how you want to be in that situation before you step into it. Yeah, thank you, Carrie. Um, I especially appreciate that because you're one of the people that I talked with about this over the last several years, and. You're right. The work before the work was very helpful. Time was in my life when I would go into a situation like that without asking, what do I need to do in advance to get ready for this? Yes. And how how do I want to be present there? Uh, I just, you know, went in to fight the fight or, or whatever my motive was, you know, to set people straight. And I went into this one with a much different attitude. I just want to bear witness to my own truth and I said to the group, if if somebody here wants to correct me, wants to tell me that I've got something completely wrong, please, I want to know that. That, too, can be liberating. And I don't want an apology. I'm not looking for anybody to grovel. I'm just wanting to be heard. I think that's all it's going to take. And, and as I said, of- the result was very positive. And part of what that work before the work did was allowed you to be really clear and true what you know what your what your voice was uh, what your truth was and even if they were not receptive you, this was a this is kind of the best case scenario when the the in within this this conversation there was receptivity and thoughtfulness um and thoughtful response but even if there had not been receptivity you still would have been able to more clearly articulate what you needed to say and walk away from the situation knowing you had presented it. I think um, that's exactly With your best right. self, with yeah. your truest and best yeah. self uh, in mind. You know, I think that work before the work sometimes allows us to respond instead of react. Yeah, you know, I, that's I, a great way to put it. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about a story that you've talked about. You know, 
what do you do when you're in a situation and someone says something um, that is racist or sexist or something that that um, is so not in line with with how you, um, you know, how you feel about the world and about people and having an actual uh, response, you know, kind of ready, you know, in that when you speak in that way, um, it hurts me, you know, you know, Uncle Joe or whoever this is, you know, it, I know you care about me. I know you care about my feelings. And this kind of what, when you say things like this, you were talking about people I know and love mm-hmm. and care about, and right. it hurts me. Yeah. Um, you know, to be able to, to have the work before the work when you know you're kind of walking into situations that we're going to be, going to be yeah, tough. You know? Exactly. And I, I think that takes us, it's a beautiful segue into the political uh, world that we live in right now. Um, which I, th- I think we're probably ready to move toward, knowing that yeah. all of these principles apply everywhere. But you're exactly right. And, of course, the, the key, I, I've said that kind of thing several times in the last few years because we hear in our public discourse so much negative rhetoric about people of color, about Muslims, about members of the LGBTQ community, and it happens that I'm blessed, as are you, with a lot of friendships, a lot of strong and valued friendships with folks who fit those descriptions, those, those external demographics. And I have said on several occasions, out of, out of the, the depths of my own feeling, that when you speak about my friends that way, it hurts me personally. And, and you need to know that as we stand here talking in this living room or in this one-on-one, whatever it may be. And, and what I find, and I know you find this too, Carrie, is that, that that shifts something important in the room. Because so many of our conversations with each other about these political and social and cultural and moral issues that are out there right now, so many of our conversations are about people who aren't in the room. They're yeah. out there somewhere. And it's so easy to talk about, to talk negatively and disparagingly about people who aren't in the room. Um, you know, there's a, a famous uh, meme that goes around about how, how the Internet is a, is a horrific breeding ground for racism and sexism and homophobia and... And, and all the rest, because it's so impersonal. We're always talking about people that we're not face-to-face with. Well, the same thing happens in friendship groups. Sadly, it happens in congregations. Sadly, it happens in workplaces. But as soon as you or I show up saying, well, I'm in the room, you're talking to me, and what you're saying is very hurtful. Um, it. I may be angry, but I don't say it angers me. I say it hurts, because it does. Um, And I'm here, and you have to deal with me. Something shifts in that conversation. 
it's it's not that the person all of a sudden says, oh, I'm so, so sorry, I really didn't mean that, because people who get on a roll about these things often have a lot of energy behind that. But I do notice that sometimes they stop talking that way, and when people stop talking, there's at least a chance that they start thinking. Mm. And they have yeah. to go home. They have to go home with the memory of that moment um, in which they were confronted, not on an ideological issue, um, but on a personal basis by someone who was there. And I think that's a pretty key idea. You know, when it's all in theory, it's easier to make generalizations. It's easier to um, to speak in ways that you wouldn't person to person. And, and I think that's one of one of the things, you know, you've talked about it. We've talked about it, this idea of how do you find the human thread? And what you're talking about is finding the human thread. Mm-hmm. When you speak that way, it personally hurts me. And this is why, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes find... The, turning to wonder and saying, I'm wondering why this person is speaking in the way they are speaking and, and turning to and asking the question, you know, I, wa- I really want to understand this. Can you explain this to me? Because mm-hmm. I want to get beyond theory here. I, I want to talk personally. What what brought you to this this idea? Right. Um, and, and and then often you'll hear a story. I mean, what, there's been... What's your story? Been, yeah. And it's been really interesting for me at times to hear a person's story and that shifts some, you know, like a, a comment that just, whoo, just kind of knocked me down. And what do I do with this? And then asking for the story and, and finding out there's a nuance to the story that, oh, okay, I, I don't really agree to where, where you got, you know, where you ended up, but I see kind of your path there. And so now I can talk to you and, and, you know, on that human path, you know, and, and, and sometimes it takes laying it out here. Okay, let's, let's, let's pull this back. You know, I believe that we have some real commonalities here. I love my, my child, you love your children. Okay. You know, we love our community. We do. We want to see the world be a better place. Okay. You know, um, you know, there's certain places we both really like sunsets, and mm-hmm. we love the Indiana woods. Okay, you know, we, we we have a place to start at some beautiful shared value, and 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 then you know, then we can walk along the path together for a little ways. And how how are all... we gonna how are we gonna protect these shared values, right? Right, and so it doesn't always mean that idea that people have to agree with each other. And if they don't agree with each other, then again, it's all terribly wrong <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that the relationships are, have ended that disagreement does not mean insult. And I think that's been one of those interesting things that's kind of popped up that if you disagree with me, that's an, in, that's a personal insult to me. Um, and I think kind of pulling back again and pausing, taking a step back and, because we are in disagreement at this point, yeah. doesn't the, doesn't doesn't mean that that it, it has all gone south now. I mean, sometimes, no, <laughs> sometimes no, it has, but but you know yeah. that that there's still a conversation to be had even when you disagree. Um, but it does take again that authentic 
authenticity, staying with integrity, speaking your truth and speaking it clearly with love, doing the work before the work, responding, not just reacting, um, working with uh, situations personally and vocationally and politically right now. you know, it, it takes a lot of thoughtfulness. and It, it does, it, it does. And, it, and it's really asking me to be a better person than I ever thought I would need to be, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I, right, I right. really, I, I'm really challenged often, you know, okay, my best and truest self, how do, what do, I, how do I bring that mm-hmm. to this particular conversation right now? You know, I, I, there's so much importance in what you just said, um, and I know you you live that you live that out. And I think a good example of of a situation in which people's better angels were able to show up, and we all became better persons than we thought we were capable of being, is that work-related situation that I talked about a few yes, minutes uh-huh. ago. We had somehow together established the circumstances that allowed the better angels to come forth. But that took preparation on everybody's part. And it actually took a couple of years to get there. So patience is part of the deal. But, you know, I really believe in the possibility of the better angels, but I want to say a couple of hard things that I think are also true these days, the realities that I at at least feel that I need to deal with. One is... I make a distinction between two kinds of statements when it comes to asking for the story behind it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if, if, if we're debating a policy issue, and I had such a conversation some months ago with a gentleman who felt that <clears throat> business owes nothing to anybody, nothing to the common good, it owes only to its stockholders and investors. And so here we were disagreeing on a policy level about an ideological or an economic issue. And I asked him, so tell me a story about your life that would help me understand why you believe that. And he told me one that gave me a little deeper understanding. I didn't end up agreeing with him and he didn't end up agreeing with me, but we stayed connected as human beings because we knew a little more about each other's stories. And I responded to his story, not with an argument, but by telling a story about my father, a Chicago businessman, who believed that his company did owe something to the larger society. And so we were trading stories, and that creates more closeness, more connectedness, and that's when I'm willing to to ask for a story. But when somebody assaults an individual or a group of individuals, And there's a lot of that going around these days. I am not interested in asking for the story, which would, and the only honest question I could ask was, how did you become such a cruel and inhuman racist? Um, That's not a question that's going to open up a lot for anybody. And I'm, I'm just not willing to support a point that point a point of view that is essentially cruel and inhuman by asking for the story. That's when I say, you need to know that you're talking about friends of mine. And this is what you say it is personally hurtful to me and I'm here. And now you need to deal with me if you want to continue that line of conversation. 
So I think there's some important distinctions to be made. And one, yeah. other, hard, one other hard distinction that I want to make. So in 2011, I published a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy. Um, and I think it, some, it reflected what was going on at the time, but it also uh, was somewhat anticipatory of what's going on today. And I remember one of the early things I wrote in that book because it's really a book about <clears throat> we the people and my belief that we can have a conversation that would reunite us and someday I believe we will <clears throat> even though the it's it, the chances look slim right now I hold on to that not just hope but conviction that it things come around but I said in that book I will grant you the fact from the outset that 15 to 20 percent of the people on the far right and 15 to 20 percent of the people on the far left will never be able to engage in the quality of conversation that I'm imagining here. I think those statistics weren't far off um, because yeah. I think we see that all around us. But then I went on to make the point, so suppose that it's 20 percent on both sides that still leaves 60% in the middle, where which is plenty enough to do business in a democracy, um, if the democracy is functioning as it should. And so one of the things that I think is important politically is to, to just stop trying to bring everyone into the fold and, and work with those people who are, you know, within reach. There are still a lot of reasonable people left in this society. I may disagree with them politically, but they're reasonable. I've heard reasonable debates and conversations about every hot-button issue that other people are just blowing up things with. Um, and, and so whatever side you're on in, uh, in some of these debates or, or food fights of our time, Let's reach for the folks within within reach. Let's reach for the folks who can have this conversation, and I think I think we can start getting somewhere a little faster than we seem to be getting right now. It's it's an interesting, I mean, visual for me that idea of you know there there are going to be people um, on on far ends of spectrums that will not be able to be in conversation. Um, but that there's so there's still a, a wide swath that will be able to continue being in conversation, uh, and it has you know and and politically I do we have a long way to go, but I I do have to remind myself sometimes that you know when our when the United States was founded when we said all men are created equal it was men. And it was white men with land, you know. So, and that, and that's who was created equal. Um, so it's been this dynamic pull and push toward um, expanding what that means. That 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 you know, really golden idea and ideal that we are all created equal, and that deserve to be treated with respect and deserve to have a chance um, for life and liberty and happiness, you know. So, you know, 
I, I do have to remind myself that that we have a long way to go, but it it is a dynamic process, and to also take um, you know a lot of cues and you know learn learning about what's come before us to help us go forward from here. Yes, um, absolutely. To, you know, we've come a long way, but we haven't come far enough. So, we have so what what do we do next? And so, so I, you know, I think this has just been just a really, you know, rich conversation today. And and like I said, I, I think this is a growing edge for a lot of us. It's a growing edge for for me, you know. And me too. you know, one of the things that I have to give myself is I, I make mistakes in it, you know, that. Um, I'm going to do the best I can, do the best I can in this this conflicted situation, and and I I might wow I learned something there, and now the next time I go into a, a situation that's similar, I have more information on what I need yeah. to do and how yeah. I need to prepare myself or yeah you know so I think too part of a person's if a person is not comfortable with conflict as as we were talking about earlier um this desire to fix it quickly that sometimes it's uncomfortable so let's fix it quickly you know which will lead again to that idea of false harmony that sometimes things have to be uncomfortable for a while and they have to be hashed out for a while and um that it can't be fixed quickly and and, and we so, may so, lose some friends in the process but for hopefully mm-hmm. it's on behalf of a higher good you know and i think that's one of those things and you know, we were talking about um gender differences in terms of conflict mm. but i think there might be a little bit of age difference too sometimes i i think as i get older it's not that i have become comfortable with conflict but i am becoming more um accepting that allowance that some things are going to take time and we have to be in process here for a little while. Um, and yep, I'm uncomfortable with this, you know? So I think one of the things that's happening for me as I get older is uh, a willingness and a greater ability to stay in process and to be in process, to not disappear psychologically, not to disappear physically, like I'm out of here, you know? Um, but, to stay in process. Um, and, you know, you talk about that too, is this, this progression um, of knowing, knowing deep down that you have to stay true to yourself. You have to stay authentic. You have to be true to, to that, that integrity at the very heart of yourself. Or what does it matter? I mean, what, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. not helping the relationship. It's not helping this moment of conflict. Yeah, well, that's the that's the plumb line. That's the plumb line. So, you know, I'm old enough to be your father, so you can't imagine how comfortable I am with conflict. I mean, it's, really, <laughs> it's just, and on this mistake thing, you you'll be glad to know that I made one once myself. I think it was in 1984. So, but I, I, I'd have to look at my calendar to make sure. But, you know, I think for me, Carrie, the one value of this conversation is that it reminds me of a couple of bottom line things, and maybe that's the point at which we start to sum up. One thing for me is, is I always have to be ready 
to say to myself and to act as if it were true, I may well be wrong about this. Mm-hmm. And so I had better listen to see, yeah. you know, what I can learn because that's that's why I'm here is in this conversation. I'm in this conversation to learn. I'm not in this conversation to win a fight, um, you know, or to score points or to look mm-hmm. cool or or whatever. Yeah. I'm I'm here to learn. So let me conduct myself in a way that is premised on the notion, I think I'm right, but I might be wrong. So what do I have to learn from this person? But an equally important principle for me, maybe the other pole of that paradox, is I am unwilling, utterly and uh, and eternally unwilling, to engage in a conversation that's premised on the notion that some people are less than human, or some people are less than deserving of being treated as human beings. Um, Absolutely. There's lots of isms to name such conversations. I, the one thing I know for sure that I'm not wrong about is that every human being has an identity and integrity that's sacred and precious and is not to be demeaned. And... American history is so complicated on that because when you think about the folks who weren't included in all men are created equal, they were Native Americans, they were enslaved human beings brought to this country against their will from Africa, Um, they were women, and they were poor people who didn't own land. And it doesn't take but a split second of thinking to realize Oh my God, those are the same groups that are still struggling for equality today. So while the founders were geniuses at creating a system of government that allowed us to keep expanding our definition of men into other categories, they planted some very bad DNA in in the origins of this nation. Mm -hmm. And you don't you don't get rid of DNA. You can splice it to some extent. You can modify the way that it interacts with the environment. But we've got a fundamental DNA problem in this country that keeps popping up depending on the circumstances. You know, you get a president who is speaking of of honoring the identity and integrity of all people, and that more of that comes up you get a president who wants to demean whole groups with a tar brush, uh, then that comes up. So we, I think we, you know, these are things worth thinking about. And gosh, I thought we'd be able to take care of all this in an hour, but here we are, and we're going to have to bring this to an end. Well, takeaways for me. First, I just want to affirm what you were just saying about being sure to remember that sometimes I need to be humble to know that I've been wrong be, before on things and to learn what I can learn. And to also there are places where I just say, um, no, I'm, I'm not wrong on that. And one of those being the, the dignity and the um, sacredness of, of every human being. So, um, and being clear about that for myself. Also, I was thinking the idea of breathing, about breathing with this, that 
um, I have a song called Sanctuary. And the, the premise behind the song was that something happened politically that just broke my heart, you know. Um, and I, I actually, I, I wrote you. I was in an airport and I wrote to you, Parker, and I said, what does a person do when they're feeling personally or politically heartbroken? And you wrote me back this beautiful letter saying, there are times when we need to take sanctuary, you know, when we rest in the arms of a community or an individual we love and trust, when we gather our courage and our strength, remember what it is that we love so much. Um, and then we step out again, you know, into the good work and sometimes into the fray. You know, you talked about Brown Chapel as being one of those places during the civil rights movement. It was such a beautiful letter. And I ended up writing the song Sanctuary. Sometimes you step out and do that hard work. But there are times when you have to take some sanctuary and remember and take strength from community. So yeah, so I was thinking all this hard work we're talking about and the work before the work and really discovering and, and, and staying true to what it is you know is right, being humble with what conversation there still is, all this work. It's like a breathing. I think it's important for me um, to remember to breathe into this, that we've been working on this for a long time. We'll be working on this, um, you know, peace, love, truth, and justice. Um, I don't think that it will be perfected in my lifetime, but that doesn't mean I, you know, shouldn't keep breathing and walking toward it and working toward it. Amen. Amen. I, I love that song, Sanctuary, and I, I love the recorded version that you and Gary Walters, our brilliant pianist friend, did. Let's go out on, on that music. I'd, I'd be very, very grateful if we could. I think that's a great idea. Let's, let's do that. Will you be my refuge, my haven in the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary? Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on. Carry on This one knocked me to the ground This one dropped me to my knees I should have seen it coming But it surprised me Will you be my refuge? My haven in the storm Will you keep the embers warm When my fire's all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary? Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on, carry on. In a state of true believers on streets called us and them. It's gonna take some time till the world 
feel safe again Will you be my refuge My haven in the storm Will you keep the embers warm When my fire's all but gone Will you remember And bring me sprigs of rosemary Be my sanctuary Till I can carry on Carry on Carry on. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we have a favor to ask if you like today's show, rate us and leave us a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for his performance on the song Sanctuary. And wild appreciation for Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and because she is walking toward the better kind of world. You can rest here in Brown Chapel or with a circle of friends, a quiet grove of trees or between two bookends. Will you be my refuge? My haven in the storm Will you keep the embers warm When my fire's all but gone Will you remember And bring me sprigs of rosemary Be my sanctuary Till I can carry on Carry on Carry on Carry